0: This is the future of finance by Motive Labs.
1: Hello, and welcome again to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. I'm Sam, and I'm joined today by Danny Lopez, CEO of Blipper. Danny, you and I first met in New York a number of years ago. You've had one of the most decorated and broadest career experiences of anyone I know, from bank executive to a diplomat at the highest levels to technology executive. Could you perhaps tell our listeners a little bit about your career journey?
0: Sure. Um, well, great to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me, Sam. And um I mean, I don't know about decorated, but definitely broad. <laughs> I, uh, I feel like I have um, tried to reinvent myself a few times, and it's been a lot of fun along the way. So um, I, I was brought up in Spain, and uh, Spanish father, English mother, I uh, came over here to study for university, joined Barclays in what was then their graduate program, and spent 10 years with the bank, traveling around uh, UK and, and overseas, then decided that I'd had enough of banking and went into government, which was a real 180, but a lot of fun promoting the UK internationally. That led me to leading the agency that promoted London internationally. And then somehow I became the uh, UK senior diplomat in New York, which was such an honor and just the most amazing experience. And now in tech. So yes, pretty varies. And I feel like I'm starting the second half of my career. So looking forward to see what that brings.
1: Excellent. You talk about London and Partners there. You you were with the CEO of
0: London and Partners at a very exciting time, post-crash, pre-Olympics. What was that like? It was very different. Um, London used to have a whole host of agencies that promoted its culture, its business, its tourism, and uh, Boris, when he was mayor, was very keen to bring it all under one roof, and so we created London and Partners, bringing all of that together to promote London uh, internationally, and of course, yeah, think about where we were, you know, post-crash, uh, it was hard, uh, at the same time, there was a lot of excitement starting and bubbling around uh, around the Olympics, and we realized that we had, you know, not just one in a generation, and one in a lifetime opportunity to promote London like never before, and mm-hmm. the optimism, the positivity came through really strongly. And it had an impact on everything. Inward investments grew heavily, tourism, of course, lots of excitement, culture. I mean, you know, where do you start? It was a really, really fun time. And I think if I had to pick one, it was the emergence of the tech scene. And that was great to see in action. You know, Tech City, and the Silicon Roundabout, you know, people didn't really know what that meant. There were just a few mm-hmm. players in town and then look what it's become.
1: Yeah, it really has become something quite great here. Uh, and we'll talk about the financial technology side of it in a moment. But. You then went on to become the British Consul General in New York. Yeah. That's a highly coveted position with some other amazing former colleagues of yours having taken that role too. What exactly does it involve? What do you have to do as the British Consul General?
0: Well, I was very fortunate. Um, David Cameron and William Hague at the time decided that they wanted somebody in that role that had a commercial background. And and as I say, it was just the most amazing experience and such an honor to be able to join the Foreign Office and, and promote the UK. In New York, so it was a dual role. One part of it was the diplomacy, so uh, being the face of the UK in uh, New York, engaging at the very highest level in the political scene, the business scene, the cultural scene, being the person who can host, um, create opportunities for visiting senior members of government, uh, the royal family, you name it. You know, you're basically networking and creating creating value and opportunities. But then, of course, I also led the trade and investment agenda, which at the time was UK Trade and Investment, now the Department of International Trade. 150 people in 12 offices across the US and Canada. And that was all about generating inward investment and promoting trade. So just a fantastic combination of business and kind of everything else. You get a front row seat in terms of what's happening in the world. And I think my highlight would have to be hosting uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge when they came to New York for what was an incredible 48 hours and I think had the most long lasting impact that we, that we could ever imagine. It was amazing.
1: Do they, uh, forgive the uh, informal question, but do they bunk down at the residence with you
0: when they stay there? actually they didn't uh, we did host prince harry in 2013 when he came over to new york and we hosted a lot of people but on that occasion they uh, they didn't uh, they didn't stay at the residence actually the residence was another highlight you know there i was in new york having been there a few years before working for barclays uh, living in a rather small apartment in midtown and all of a sudden i got to live in this most amazing residence 9000 square feet where you know pretty much every day we entertained who's who of, of new york city and that was just Pretty incredible, amazing,
1: and you're still involved with with a number of organisations over there. The FinTech Collective, a, a VC that we admire a huge amount, a number of charities. How often do you get back there, and yeah, what are the organisations that you're still spending time mm. with?
0: Well, I get back to uh, to New York quite frequently. Um, well, at least once a quarter. Um, in my current day job at Blipper, we have an office in uh, in New York, so I spend a bit of time with uh, with the team there. And it's great to be able to stay connected to so many of the people that I built up relationships with over my five years in, in New York. Um, I'm still very involved in a, in a charity called St. George's Society, mm-hmm. which is the oldest British charity, um, definitely New York, probably the U.S. And uh, it does a great job of helping citizens from the Commonwealth that have fallen on hard times, that live in, in New York, and, and actually also brings together... The very best, when I say the very best, just you know just very nice and influential people, British expats in in New York that's you know kind of want to help out. and mm-hmm. um, it's very nice to be a, a part of that. So yeah, New York sort of pulls me back constantly. I mean, you know six hour flight, less. It just feels um, feels like home every time I go.
1: No, it certainly is a short flight. I was there last week where we recorded Larry Summers, actually, on a podcast. And, uh, it's yeah,
0: it's a joy to go there. It's the too short, though, I find sometimes. You know, when you fly mind, you're, is, flying yeah. back from, you're flying back from New York to London and the pilot will always tell you very proudly that he's going to break his, you know, his or her own record and instead of, you know, five <laughs> hours and 33 minutes, it's yeah. going to be five hours and 17. And you think, well, actually, can you go a little bit slow and just allow me to sleep a little yeah, bit more? Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> um, from Barclays through to the diplomat roles,
1: uh, and you're now at a technology firm. There's been a huge amount of hype around the large incumbent technology players, the gaffers, having a larger role to play in financial services. A, I guess, do you agree with that statement? And B,
0: what kind of role do you see them playing in the future? I think it's, I mean, you know, we're living in this most fascinating time in fintech. And and I look at the big banks And I do worry about, you know, what they're going to do on the retail side. I think on the corporate and investment banking side, you know, we still have huge global players with very deep pockets and very strong networks. And, you know, that's probably much harder to disrupt. On the retail side, I I find that banks are sort of constantly and have been now for a few years playing catch up, Mm -hmm. and you know what they will try and offer is sort of a very similar proposition to kind of what the younger, fresher, more agile players are are doing, and of course investing very heavily in digital. But is it enough? And I'm not sure. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm a good example of I'm 44. um, You know, now have a number of um, new fintech retail offerings. I love them and it's sort of making me think a little bit differently about the more traditional you know high street bank that I've been used to for all of all of my career and I think it's very hard for banks to to address this and I think just doing more of the same but investing more heavily in technology is not enough I think they're going to have to do a lot of what you know the other players are doing which is kind of being part of our everyday life in a very different way it's not just about collecting data but it's actually you know offering offering services that are beyond financial services and what the Amazons and Googles and others are doing is is spot on
1: yeah one of the things we talk about a great deal at, at Motive is ecosystem economics and the ability to bring different people uh, and organisations together as part of a network to offer a sort of Lego type assembled mm-hmm. suite of services, um, yeah. whether that's through uh, the new API open banking yeah. culture yeah. and sandboxes, or if it's just through collaborations within the industry. Blipper has a number of industry collaborations yeah. and partners. Could you perhaps give an overview of who and what Blipper are? Sure.
0: So, um, so Blipper, we we specialize in in augmented reality, which is all about overlaying digital content on the physical world, uh, allowing camera lens is essentially to become an extension of your eyesight. And your camera lens then has the software that is able to identify what is in front of it, give you contextualized valuable information back and that applies to so many industries. So over the last few years, we've worked very hard with, uh, very well and closely with the FMCG space who have been very fast to adopt augmented reality as a way to be able to engage with the customer base in a far deeper fashion and also see how they monetize that into, into buying behavior, et cetera. But actually, you know, thinking about financial services, which is something we do a lot about, you, know, you can just imagine that moment when you're walking down a street and you see a house and you point your phone at that house. And the camera lens then knows exactly what that house is, where it is, what value it has, but it also knows who you are. And it also is able to know automatically whether you would qualify for a mortgage on that house or not. Mm-hmm. It would then be able to calculate what the insurance premium might be for contents of building insurance and everything is happening through the camera lens. So we think a lot about that and we see a world where augmented reality is just going to become part of our everyday life and it's not just about experiencing it, but it's also creating it. And we do a lot of work too in terms of having the, the platform that we see as kind of you know the WordPress of AR, which is mm-hmm. something we're very proud of and keep keep working on. So. I think augmented reality will become part and parcel of uh, of the fintech proposition its early days is early days yet and as I say at the moment it's been very much in the sort of wider advertising space but it's it's heading in that direction and you know we're definitely moving towards a world where you know it's not information overload but you know it's kind of contextualized personalized information that will be delivered either through the camera lens on your phone or a camera lens in in eyewear headsets etc very exciting space
1: it's a really good point i mean you look at the top 5 technology companies by market cap some of them are software businesses, some of them are hardware businesses. Is Blipper going to play in the hardware
0: space? No, we're very much, we're we're definitely a software player. And, uh, you know, you could argue with AR sometimes that the hardware is probably limiting the ability of AR to really take off. Because even though the computing power that we have in phones is so mm-hmm. it's so mm-hmm. extraordinary, you're still carrying a phone in your hand. It's, and if we're talking about augmented reality and computer vision becoming an extension of your eyesight, then actually you want to have it engaging with your eyes directly. But headsets and, uh, and, 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 and eyewear is still, you know, it's expensive. It's not very sexy. The battery power you know, has been an issue over the years. And the moment all of that gets taken care of of, then it really probably takes off on a massive scale, but that's not us. We're the software. We're completely device agnostic, and we want to be, you know, we sort of across all platforms, but delivering the software that's well leading.
1: Like the iOS of, of augmented reality?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, but this is the great thing about, it was fascinating to see how much investment, you know, Apple and Google are putting into ARKit and ARCore. We sit above it, so uh, mm. so we can, we present comprehensive solutions that's, you know, again, device and operating system agnostic, but can cover the whole thing.
1: And so who are your biggest partners and, and how does the revenue model work?
0: The revenue model is, uh, is based on the work that we carry out for, you know, some of the largest brands in the world who will come to us to develop mm. some very comprehensive and complex campaigns. Um, the same for uh, advertising agencies who will come to us to be able to deliver solutions for uh, for their clients. And then our APIs, our computer vision APIs can be plugged into any industry. So, you know, we can recognize every single car in the US market and with a 99% certainty can give you a make model and year just by pointing at it. So, you can see how, you know, insurance auto companies find that API extremely interesting okay. that's plug and play
1: brilliant thank you you're also a non-exec as if you didn't have enough to do with with with, uh, with that role you're also a non-exec at Innovate Finance an organisation I had the great privilege of being part of the founding team of they have a very broad mandate in the UK ecosystem and they play a critical role in maintaining momentum and being the community ringleader for all different actors in the ecosystem mm-hmm. from two guys with an idea in a shed to the, the larger incumbents. What are some of the, uh, the current strategic imperatives for the organization at the moment?
0: It's a very exciting time for Innovate Finance because of you know, where we are, as you say, from you know, the very small startup to the very large institution thinking about banking and financial services more generally. What we're trying to do at Innovate Finance is provide the right level of promotion for all players, big, small, medium size. Bringing them together. I mean, you know, in a way, Innovate Finance is, is we're working hard to be kind of the central part of the ecosystem that can bring people together, allowing the right discussion flows on every single subsector in the space. So great programs. And The second part is uh, is policy, engaging with government, not specifically lobbying, but making sure that government understands the priorities that the sector mm-hmm. has, being able to play that back, and making sure that government understands what some of those priorities are, and then and then, as I say, play them back to uh, to the to the industry. So a lot there in terms of promotion, a lot there in, in terms of uh, programs, and then celebrating the success. You know, so much is about making sure that, again, from small player to big player, we really celebrate, not just in the UK, but globally, mm-hmm. everything that the fintech community is achieving. So, you know, those are uh, those are the three key priorities. But I just, I, I just find, you know, the whole sector so fascinating. I was having a conversation this morning with somebody as I was coming in to, to see you about how they felt around having Amazon in their home listening to what they're saying, adding value to their life. And then we were having the discussion, because I mentioned we always, I was coming here around, well, what role do they play in financial services? And I just think it's, it's incredible to think about, you know, the, the sort of key question all the time is, are they going to come into banking? And And I think it's so much of this is, Actually, how are they going to build on everything they know about you Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then be able to offer the right service? So, you know, is Amazon going to come up with a bank tomorrow? I mean, you know, maybe, but, you know, surely it makes more sense that if through their devices they can lock your door and understand whether there's a potential fire hazard in your home Mm -hmm. and they see, you know, see and listen to that every day then all of a sudden insurance becomes a very different proposition and I, yeah. and I think there's, it's just thinking about all of that for the big players and the small players and having an organisation like Innovate Finance that facilitates that flow of information and discussion brings it to government and back and allows the ecosystem to come together is what it's all about
1: Absolutely you just reminded me I was in China recently with Sir Tim Berners-Lee and he did a, almost like a role play on stage talking about an AI assistant yeah. communicating with its, its user and one of the things he talks about passionately is the AI working for the consumer. Yeah. And I think, to a point the Lord Mayor also made, the crux of this next evolution, the next stage of technology is going to be built around a values yeah. um, set of frameworks. How do we keep control of this stuff mm-hmm. um, and make sure that it, it works for the benefit of society and the economy? And- I completely
0: agree. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's the old cliche, but Really have to embrace everything that's coming our way, and you know, of course, it's natural that we're going to have some concerns, and we should address those concerns properly, and you know, through regulation, of course. But you know, those concerns should not mean that we can't add so much value to to our life. I mean, you know, one of the questions I always ask audiences when I talk about augmented reality and computer vision is whether they would be comfortable in they essentially choose whether, if you point a phone at their face, you would be able to know potentially their name maybe their nationality, and if they have any illnesses. That is absolutely their choice. So nobody's forcing them to do that. But if they chose to do that, would they be okay with that information being out there so that they're traveling around the world, they faint, they left all their documents at the hotel, and somebody is able to just point their phone at their face and obtain valuable information that might save their life? And I always ask the same question, would you be okay with that? Mm. And typically around 80% of an audience will say no we have this sort of natural instinct i think still of being very concerned with all where all of this is going and people aren't thinking about whether it you know saves their life takes them to the embassy that will be able to take care of them so they're yeah. not thinking about the value they're thinking about this is, it sounds very dangerous. And I think so much of this is trying to make sure that we're able to emphasize and talk about all the good things that we're trying to do. And then people will come along the journey. I mean, it's happening that's, anyway.
1: That's human nature. Yeah, I of mean, course. Yeah, Henry Ford said, if you'd asked the people what they wanted, they would have said and they it was exactly. um, And I remember when Airbnb came out, I was the first person to say that I would never stay on one. And now yeah. it's a frequent occurrence. Yeah. You're right. I think we have to embrace Right, through to, uh, I've got a couple questions for you that are slightly less professional. Not inappropriate, I should add. Um, but you've had a very diverse career, as we've spoken about today. Who, through your career, have been some of your most important business role models?
0: Yeah, I mean, gosh, I feel like i could spend another 20 minutes talking about, about that. I mean, a I few I, I would highlight. I mean, I've had great bosses, and I sort of feel like they may not necessarily people that everybody would recognize. But it's always important, I think, to be able to draw on role models that you've seen in action. And for me, two of those would be um, Sir Andrew Kahn, former um, CEO of uh, UK Trade and Investment, and Sir Peter Westmacott, who uh, was the uh, our ambassador in the US, and learned so much from them. And then I feel like people like Mervyn Davis, mm. former CEO of Standard Chartered, who was then also an outstanding minister, so he really bridged that gap in the private and public sectors, would be somebody I would, I would highlight. Um, I'm going to give you two more and then I'll tell you why. Helena Morrissey, I would definitely pick um, pick her. And if I just sort of stay with those two, for me, it's the ability to not just be able to deliver excellence in, in business and be outstanding leaders, but it's also having a really strong sense of purpose and a passion that kind of goes beyond their everyday business dealings, which, you know, obviously we saw with the 30% Club with, with Helena and actually the same with Mervyn, who spent so much time and, and effort and energy on, Equality, gender equality, in uh, in boards across across the UK. So it's just, as I say, it's that it's that passion for purpose that goes beyond beyond their their business ambitions, which I think is so strong. And then I think another one for me is also a real human touch, and and, I, and that is critical for me. You know, I mean, I've seen a lot of business CEOs who you know might be great leaders, but just lack that human touch, um, mm-hmm. and I can't help but lose respect for them automatically. Um, and when I see leaders who not just kind of, you know, say the right things, but really care about their people and their organizations, then, you know, for me, always, my respect, you know, is, is a 10X on that. And the final one I'd pick, um, somebody I don't know well, but I, I think is very interesting story, is Anthony Jenkins, who, from CEO of Barclays, has gone on to, to 10X Technologies and, and, you know, understands the sector inside out, and has then thought about how he goes about trying to reinvent it. And it's a sort of corporate reinvention as well as a personal reinvention, and I admire that a lot.
1: Yeah, I agree with all all those points. Next question, what do you think will be the
0: most promising geographic region over the next hundred years? A hundred years? Wow, that's definitely looking into the future. Yeah, it really Um, is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'll go on, I'll sort of, I'll give you two, but I'll just give you a couple first. I mean, I I still feel that, uh, you know, when I was living in the US, I felt that a lot of people had already written the US off. In terms of the next hundred years, and you know, it's all about Asia, and therefore, you know, the U.S. was this giant in decline, and it was kind of game over. I've I've always disagreed with that. I, I still feel that the U.S. a little bit like my answer earlier on on leaders. You know, it has this extraordinary capacity for reinvention and uh, and such amazing emphasis on on innovation and R and D. And I think that the U.S. is still very much in the frame. I wouldn't write off Europe either. I mean, I know that you know we we have our challenges, um, and uh, but again, it sort of always feels like you know Europe is kind of passé, and I really don't think it is. And we're seeing, I mean, just in fintech alone, how well Europe is doing on a number of fronts. Of course, you know, Asia has this just most incredible. Well, it's not even promise. I mean, what's happening there at the moment is uh, is on such a massive scale and extremely exciting. But then, you know, Africa. I mean, I think your question was 100 years. Well, the change that needs to happen in Africa over the next 10, 20, 30 and beyond years is is on a very different scale to any of the regions that we have across the globe. So, uh, you know,
1: I would probably pick Africa. And then second last question, what was the best investment you didn't make?
0: Well, I I can't tell you how many people talk to me about Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) This is probably the answer you get all the time, but it really does bug me because, you know, 2012, 2013, it was just... I mean, it came up so many times in conversation and, you know, maybe it's because I was a diplomat at the time and I thought, oh gosh, I definitely can't get close to these things. And now I look back and I think 2013, I mean, it just feels uh, just like yesterday. And whilst we could have a very long separate conversation on Bitcoin and and others, and I mean, I'm a huge fan of the underlying technology. I mean, I'm actually quite a fan of some of some of the coins. But it's the underlying technology that I have a lot of respect for. And I do feel like I totally missed out and uh, should have listened to a lot of people at the time. Yeah, it's
1: true. I mean, you think about the history of money, You you know, paper money took me 400 years to come into proper circulation. And then, you know, after just 70 years, Visa and MasterCard are starting to slowly be displaced and Bitcoin over Really, this sort of six-year period has... I mean, it's got a larger market cap than JP Morgan yeah. as a currency. But it's one of those things that no one knew where it was going to go. And I put a little bit of money into, into a number of different cryptocurrencies. But it, for me, it was asymmetric risk. It, yeah. I was going to put it in there and leave it for... 10, 15 years, and it was either going to be worth
0: nothing or it was yeah. going to be worth a fortune. And I don't check how it's doing very often. A friend of mine has a very similar approach. You know, she's got it all in her wallet, and she made a promise to herself that she would only check the value on the 1st of January of each year for the next 10. That's kind yeah, of her yeah. approach, which uh, which is very similar. But I mean, you know, and then how often do you use cash? I mean, I never have cash in my pocket, literally never. I mean, I have three very young kids, and I, and I, I mean, I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime, but I definitely can't see how cash... Paper and coin continues for much longer.
1: I agree, particularly with contactless. I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. Thank you. Uh, and then one final question uh, as we embark on the World Cup. Ah, yes. Who would you pick? I, I know there's going to be some patriotism in here that, yeah. that comes to the forefront. But yeah, who do you pick to win?
0: Well, we have a pretty complicated family because my wife's Australian. So we always have to support Australia. But that typically doesn't last very long. <laughs> Although I hope it does, of course, and uh, it was actually my lucky pick in the uh, office sweepstake yesterday, so I've got Australia. And then, uh, obviously, I, you know, I'm I'm essentially half Spanish, half English, and so when I was growing up in Spain. I uh, never picked Spain. Spain was terrible at that time, and I would always pick England. And it kind of tied turned turn a little bit. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I have to say that my Spanish side is coming to the fore a little bit more in current World Cups. And then my uh, my girls were born in the US, but they didn't qualify. So. Um, Yeah, it's a sort of Spain-England one. And, uh, look, I'd love England to do well, but (laughs) somehow I think that I might be backing Spain on this one. What about you? I mean, England, of course, but if you didn't back England. Yeah, uh, supporting England and backing England, I think are perhaps two different
1: things. But uh, I'm more of a a fan of the egg-shaped ball. But I would probably
0: go for a rather generic Brazil. Mm. You see, if I had to put maybe just, you know, a very tiny little bit of bitcoin on one i would probably pick a country that starts with b but isn't brazil i would pick belgium yeah i think they might have the most amazing talent and whether they can pull it off or not but it's probably my favorite dark horse of the last few years hey,
1: interesting well it's a great place to end because uh, we have our third office one in New York one in London is actually in Belgium yeah. uh, and we have yeah, a number of our founding partners are, are from Belgium so I'm sure they'll be delighted to hear that double celebration in a month's time exactly <laughs> Danny thank you very much indeed it's thanks Sam pleasure. very enjoyable thank you thank you for your time and insights and thank you very much for tuning in I'm Sam see you next time